This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is avoiding the advances of the adversary. In the first half, Boyd K. Packer shares his address, Fledgling Finches and Family Life. Then in the second half, Douglas R. McKinley speaks on The Approachable Master. Since I received this assignment from the First Presidency, I've read carefully and the theme and pondered and prayed. I've reviewed the catalog listing more than a thousand classes and the names of the instructors. There's a good feeling to all of it, and I've come this morning to teach. When we presided over the New England Mission, we lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Across the street lived Dr. Carl J. Friedrich, a retired Harvard professor, a world-renowned scholar. We sent our boys over to clear their sidewalk of snow, then opened contact with them. When Donna's parents came to visit at Christmas, the Friedrichs invited us over for the lighting of their Christmas tree, an old-fashioned tree with wax candles alight. It was a very beautiful experience. While visiting one day with Dr. Friedrich, he told me of the academic degrees from European universities. He became very agitated and said that it really irritated him when people asked what was he going to do with all the knowledge he gained. He answered sharply, why should I have to do anything with it? Well, I know that you have something to do with the knowledge that you will gain in this great education week for yourself, for your family, and for the church. You are learning much at this great conference. I do not know who wrote these meaningful lines, but I think they apply today. Suppose that we say, as a tenet of wisdom, that knowledge is not for delight of the mind or an end in itself, but a packet of treasure to hold and employ for the good of mankind. A torch or a candle is barren of meaning, except it give light to men as they climb. And theses and tomes are but impotent jumble, unless they are used in the building of time. And truly, our endless researches need yoking with man's daily problems and strife. For beauty and truth have virtue and value, confirmed by their uses in practical life. I feel the best possible use of what you are learning this education will, will be to your family. The back windows of our home overlook a small flower garden and the woods which border Little Cottonwood Creek. The north side of the garden is the gable end of another part of the house. Except for a large window in the middle, this wall is thickly covered with English ivy. Every year, this ivy has been the nesting place for house finches. They're small birds dressed as drably as sparrows, except in the springtime when the male puts on a bright red cap and neckerchief as his costume for serenading that he will do during the nesting season. 
The male house finch is one of the best soloists in the bird world. The nests in the vines are safe from the foxes and raccoons and cats that are about at night. Then one day, there's a great commotion in the ivy. Desperate cries brought eight or ten finches from the surrounding woods to join in this cry of alarm. I soon saw the source of the commotion. A snake slid partway down out of the ivy and hung in front of the window, just long enough for me to jerk it out of the ivy and slam it against the ground. The, the middle part of the snake's body had two bulges, clear evidence, convicting him that the snake had taken two fledglings from the nest. Not in 50 years that we have lived at home had we seen anything like that before. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, or so we thought. A few days later, there was another commotion covering the vines of our dog run. Same cries of panic, the same gathering of neighborhood finches. Now we knew what the predator was. A grandson climbed onto the run and pulled out another stake, still holding tightly to the mother bird it had caught on the nest and killed. I said to myself, what is going on? Is Eden being invaded again? <laughs> we do not destroy snakes every time we see them, for they help to control insects and rodents. But we'd learned a lesson this time. For years, I had thought the vines were perfectly safe for the birds. But the lesson was too much to be obvious, too clear to be obvious. I reflected upon Adam and Eve, the serpent in the Garden of Eden, as recorded in the book of Genesis. Now, if this story of birds and serpents is an unpleasant way to begin a sermon and makes us uncomfortable, it was meant to do just that. I have read the plain spoken words of the prophets. Some of their teachings are not always comfortable to read. But while this example is unpleasant to talk about, I hope that the principle will be more plainly understood. There came into my mind the warnings spoken by the prophets. We will not always be safe from the adversary's influence, even within our own home. We need to protect our nestlings. In order to do that, we must first acknowledge that Satan, the devil, lives. What his purposes are and what his intentions would be and what our defenses should be. He was lying in wait in the sacred grove when the boy Joseph entered. No doubt Satan was hoping to forestall the restoration. He was, quote, an actual being from the unseen world who had such marvelous power as the boy Joseph had never before felt in any being. We know that we are spirit children of heavenly parents on earth to receive our mortal bodies and to be tested. We live in a very dangerous world that threatens those things that are spiritual. The family, the most fundamental organization of the church, is under attack from forces seen and unseen. 
the adversary is about. His objective is to cause injury to the family. If he can weaken and destroy the family, he will have succeeded. The scriptures tell us to fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fill them who is able to destroy both body and soul. We also know that prophets have said that Satan cannot take one sparrow or one finch out of the nest unless we permit it. Paul warned and Timothy warned that, uh, and notice how perfectly this warning describes what's going on around us now. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come for men shall be lovers of their own self covetous boasters proud blasphemers disobedient to parents let me repeat that disobedient to parents unthankful unholy without natural affection let me repeat that without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. These verses serve as a warning, showing us the patterns to avoid. We must be ever watchful and diligent. But Paul also gave us the key to our protection. Speaking in the same chapter, he identified the healing power in this small phrase, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to, which make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. In Second Nephi, we are warned: therefore, woe be unto him that is easy in Zion. Woe be unto him that credit all as well. Yea, woe be unto him that hearkened unto the precepts of men and deny the power of God and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Yea, woe be unto him that saith, We've received, and we need no more. Moroni spoke of the wickedness of the secret combination and the wicked man coming among us. He warned us that they would be with us in our day and said, When you shall see these things come among you, that you should awake to a sense of your awful situation. Wherefore, I, Moroni, am commanded to write these things that evil may be done away and that the time may come when Satan may have no power upon the hearts of the children of men, but that they may be persuaded to do good continually that they may come into the fountain of righteousness and be saved. Do we need any more evidence to understand that we are at war with the adversary? 
The revelations teach how to win that spiritual war. And again, I will give unto you a pattern in all things that ye may not be deceived. For Satan is abroad in the land. He goes forth deceiving the nations. Wherefore, he that breatheth those spirit is continued the same to company of me in mine own ordinances. The Lord called 70 men and sent them forth. He gave them authority to teach and instruct and how to combat the forces of evil. These 70s came back and returned and the New Testament says they, they marveled with joy saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto thy name. And the Lord replied, Behold, I give unto you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. We have the names of these seventies that were called in the time of Christ. Stephen, the martyr, was one of them. And Nicodemus also died at the same time Stephen did. He was a seventy. Much has been done to prepare the church and its members to resist the forces of evil. We live in a day of revealed direction. I've been witness as a general authority to the changes that we have are revealed from time to time and that the Lord might better edify his children. For example, when I first came uh, into these circles of the church, there were seven presidents of the 70. And they were the first council of 70, the seven of them. And uh, other 70s were in stake. That pattern of organization served its purpose for a time. As the church began to grow and move abroad, more quorums of 70 were required to minister to the branches and wards and missions and stakes across the globe. And much has been changed over the years. The 70s and the state quorums have been discontinued. Instead, there are now eight quorums of 70 with 85 general authority 70s and 218 area 70s assigned to the work. Each of those 70s have had conferred upon them the apostolic authority. Their role is to instruct and edify the leaders, members of the church, to build and strengthen fathers and mothers in their sacred role as parents and leaders in the home. They strengthen the parents, including single mothers who need and deserve the watch care that they can receive. The 70 go where the 12 is limited by the number cannot. The 70s are scattered across the world as they were in the early days of the church. When you look at the map of the world and where they are, it's just dotted with the identity of 70s who are serving now. One who holds the office of apostle, 70, patriarch, high priest or elder, carries the consonant priesthood authority held on earth. The Melchizedek priesthood 
or the priesthood after the holiest order of God. From the accounts of the council in heaven, we learn that God is our Father. We are his children. We do well to always remember him as our Father. We are instructed to address him as our Father, which art in heaven. Our Father delegates to his priesthood leaders a commanding authority to preach, to teach, to minister, to bless. Joseph Smith taught that the wicked spirits have their bound. Now listen carefully. Wicked spirits have their bound and laws by which they are governed and controlled. It is very evident that they possess a power that none but those who have the priesthood can control. Joseph Smith also taught a principle crucial and important to everyone, particularly those holding the priesthood, you fully understand. He said, we came to this earth that we might have a body and present it before God in the celestial kingdom. The great principle of happiness consists of having a body. The devil has no authority, and herein is his punishment. No body in there, and there is no punishment. He is pleased when we, he can obtain the tabernacle of man. All beings who have bodies have power over those who do not. Let me say that again. All beings who have bodies have power over those who do not. The devil has no power over us, only as we permit him to have. Satan cannot seduce us by his enticement unless we in our hearts consent and yield. Our organization is such that we can resist the devil. We're not organized, so we would, if not organized in that way, we would not be free agents. The agency defined in the scriptures is a moral agency, which means that we can choose between good and evil, that every man might act and the principle pertaining to futurity according to the moral agency which we have given him, that every man might be accountable for his own sins in the day of judgment. We feel free to choose our actions, our responses to life's events and challenges, but we are not free to choose the consequences of those actions. I must say something about tolerance. Tolerance is a virtue, but like all virtues, when exaggerated, it transforms itself into a vice. The permissiveness afforded by the weakening of the laws of the land to tolerate acts of immorality, of immorality does not reduce from that agency. Consequences that result from the violation of God's law of chastity. Let me say that again. We who have bodies have the power and authority over those who do not. And we are free to choose what we will, to pick and choose our acts, but we are not free to choose the consequences. 
they come as they will come. Alma taught that the Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. In order to understand, we must separate the sin from the sinner. While the Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, he is not condemning everyone because of sin. For example, when they brought to him the woman taken in adultery, obviously guilty, he dismissed the case with five words, go and sin no more. That is the spirit and letter of his ministry. We are born with the light of Christ, a guiding influence which permits each person to recognize right from wrong. For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man that he may know good from evil. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge for everything which invites to do good and persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the gift and power of Christ. Wherefore, ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. But whatsoever thing persuades men to do evil and believe not in Christ and deny him, and serve him not, then you may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil. For after this manner doth the devil work. He persuadeth no man to do good, no, not one. Neither do his angels, neither do they who subject themselves unto him. Teach yourself and teach your families about the gift of the Holy Ghost. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. The pearl of great price begins with an account of Moses, being shown all of the creations of God. This great vision came to him, and Moses learned by that lightning experience the great difference between being in the presence of the Father and the presence of the imitator, the adversary. There's instruction in this account from the Pearl of Great Price. After being instructed by the Lord and having seen all things, the presence of God withdrew from Moses and he was left to himself. And it came to pass that it was for the space of many hours before Moses did again receive his strength unto man, like unto man. And he sent unto himself, Now, for this cause I know that man is nothing, which thing I never before had supposed. Meaning he was completely humble, completely reduced. And in that circumstance, during that time, it came to pass that Satan came, tempting him, saying, Moses, son of man, worship me. Moses refused, noting the difference in glory between the father whom he had just seen and Lucifer, the fallen son of the morning. Moses said, Who art thou? For behold, I am a son of God in the similitude of his only begotten. And where is thy glory that I should worship thee? For behold, I could not look upon God except his glory came to me and I were transfigured before him. But I can look upon thee in the natural man 
Is it not so surely? In consummate arrogance, Satan angrily demanded, demanded, I am the only begotten. Worship me. Moses was frightened. But when he received his strength, he commanded, saying, Depart from me, Satan, for this God only will I worship, which is the God of glory. Satan did not leave. Two times more, he ordered him to leave. Both times he remained. The third time, Moses invoked the ultimate authority and commanded Satan to depart. He said, In the name of the only begotten, depart hence Satan. And it came to pass that Satan cried with a loud voice and weeping and wailing and gnashing his teeth, and he departed hence. Moses learned something about himself and about the Lord and about the limited power of the adversary through that experience. Each one of us has to work through a similar testing. The scriptures tell us, now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is in God, that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God. For several decades, I have watched the changes in the church to restructure and clarify the focus on the family. Family home evening was encouraged by the First Presidency in 1915. The First Manual was printed in 1965. Then in 1970, all auxiliaries and agencies of the church were instructed to set Monday aside, Monday evening, for family home evening. Family home evening accommodates a man who holds the priesthood, the father of home, to preside over and instruct his children, his wife, the children's mother, as his helpmate. And the single mothers are given that authority. At this side, fortifying the home with their combined testimony, that mother and the single mother is never far from his watch care. Family Home Evening is not just an ordinary routine program of the church. In 1995, that great document, a proclamation to the family, the family, it was presented by all members, it was prepared by all members of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. It speaks of gender set before birth, to be protected and never defiled. The hope is that Latter-day Saints will recognize the transcendent importance of the family and live in such spiritual, attentive way that the adversary cannot steal into the home and carry away the children like that serpent did those innocent nestling fences. Our homes are most vulnerable. Therefore, the consummate power of the priesthood has been given to the protect the home and its inhabitants. It is not an easy or small thing to be a presiding officer in the church or in the home. The father has the authority and responsibility to teach the children and to bless them and to provide for them the ordinances of the gospel and every other priesthood protection that's necessary. He is to demonstrate love and fidelity and honor to the mother before the children that they can see that love 
The great plan of happiness provides that an ordinary member can be extraordinary just by obedience to the laws and ordinance of the gospel. We can find safety and security for ourselves and our children by honoring the covenants we have made and living up to the ordinary acts of obedience required of the followers of Christ. Other simple individual acts of obedience include prayer, scripture study, temple worship, payment of tithes and offerings, acceptance and faithful fulfillment of calling. Isaiah said, The work of the righteous shall be peace, the effect of righteousness, quietness, and the assurance forever. The peace is also promised in the revelations where the Lord declared, If you are prepared, you need not fear. Some of you have come today with heavy heart regarding the welfare of a wayward family member, son or a daughter, grandson or granddaughter. Some of you have been denied the privilege of worthy companionship or even an opportunity of marriage. Some have been denied the privilege of parenthood, but it is not finished in mortality. Let me remind you that fear is the opposite of faith. Be hopeful, faithful, and prayerful. Lucifer will not succeed. I do not believe that any righteous pleading prayers will go unheeded. The Lord has said, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. I have come to know that faith is a real power, not just a verb expressing or a belief. We have a body. Satan does not. We have faith. Satan does not. However much we suffer along the way, in the end, all can be well. Parents should know that ultimately their children need not be lost. Prayers and service will be rewarded with the thing that they desire the most, the safety and welfare of their children. The revelations teach the glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. Light and truth forsake the evil one. We are commanded to bring up our children in light and truth. If we explore and understand the things of the Spirit, then we can find out who the enemy is and how to protect ourselves and our children. I pray that each of us here can come to know who we are, a child of God embodied in a physical body with attendant powers and blessings, that the gospel has been restored and the consummate power of priesthood is among us. And that if you are righteous and faithful, he will answer your prayers. Not always in mortal life, but we believe in an eternal pattern of progression under the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we worship, and in reverence to the Father, who is our Father, the Father in heaven. I invoke his blessings upon all of us here, that the knowledge of the gospel doctrine will protect us and arm us against any challenge that may come to us in our lives and do so as a servant of the Lord and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is avoiding the advances of the adversary. We've just heard from Boyd K. Packer. After the break, we'll return with Douglas R. McKinley for The Approachable Master. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is avoiding the advances of the adversary. Next is Douglas R. McKinley, Associate Teaching Professor of Advertising in the BYU Department of Communications at the time of this address, titled The Approachable Master. The field of sports is a wonderful place to find metaphors and analogies for life. And I would like to begin with one this morning. It's this phrase, leaving it all on the field, which is to say that one gives everything out there on the playing field or the court or the stage, holding nothing back. There are times in our lives where this analogy makes particular sense. For example, when serving a mission, you would want to make sure you came home with no regrets that you left it all in your field of labor. There is something awfully satisfying about giving it 100% whatever the assignment. But what if your pre-earth assignment was to come to the playing field of mortality, where there would be the forces of opposition trying to keep you from leaving it all on the field? Such is certainly the case with earth life. But how do we then give it our all? What can we do to assure that we leave this life with the fewest possible regrets? For the next few minutes, we'll discuss one sure way, and that is to come under the influence of the Master, the one perfect example of someone who indeed left it all on this very playing field. And so I have titled my remarks this morning, The Approachable Master. Life's Critical Relationship. May I begin by putting a series of related questions to all of us. Why is it that we do not befriend with greater intensity our Savior, the Master of ocean and earth and skies, at a level that truly affects, perhaps even drives, our own personal behavior? Said another way, why do we not capitalize on the Spirit of Christ within all of us, to more completely comprehend the Master's purpose and the will of the only name under heaven by which we may gain life eternal. And lastly, why do we not accept more openly his simple invitation to come unto me? In much the same way President Ezra Taft Benson approached our tendency as a people to undervalue the positive effects of studying the Book of Mormon, May I be bold enough this morning to suggest that the same condition may well apply for our Savior. There was so much more to gain by developing a truly interactive relationship with the Master. To use his own parable, could it be that we are the travelers on the highway and that the Master has bid us to his wedding feast? Why would we not come? We can learn of the Master even love him for all he has accomplished on our behalf, and yet still position ourselves beyond our own ability to receive many additional 
and ennobling blessings. It would be like joining a sports team but not going to practice, not benefiting from the coach's experience, and never actually taking the field. Listen to the Savior's own injunction in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30 Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And in our day, the clarion call from the brethren is an echo from the corridors of time. Come unto Christ. The reason this call never goes away is that once we are fully engaged with the Master, we become like the followers of King Benjamin. You will recall that after his landmark speech to the people, he sent among them, desiring to know if they believed his message and if it had actually made a difference in their lives. Their unified response is an example to all of us. Yea, we believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us, and also we know of their surety and truth, because of the Spirit of the Lord omnipotent, which has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. As professed Christians and practicing Latter-day Saints, we embrace the doctrine set forth in the fourth article of faith. The first principle, of course, is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, something that precedes all else. But sadly, we sometimes become little more than Facebook friends with our Lord and Master. Clicking our like button on Sunday and then only visiting his page when we have a special need or when prompted by another Sunday arrival. Exhibiting the symbolic behavior just described, it is possible for us to become our own version of what the Apostle Paul describes in his discourse on charity as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Perhaps we could change a word or two and make it more interfacing and interrogative Have I become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal? So again, why is it that we move closer to the Savior on occasion and then drift away, and then move closer and then drift away, in an undulating kind of relationship not unlike the movement of the tides? May I share some possible reasons why we might stray from a member of the Godhead most anxious to befriend us and most ready to receive us, regardless of our present circumstance. An obvious place to begin is the sometimes subtle, but nevertheless diabolically decreed role of the devil himself, who is everlastingly committed to distancing us from the influence of the Master, and will do all in his power to keep us from developing a strong personal bond that would strengthen us and guide us safely through the many vicissitudes of life. And let us remember, the further we are from the influence of the Master, the closer we are to the influence of our most formidable foe. The adversary knows that if he can make us feel alone, even when we aren't, we become much more vulnerable to his very careful, very strategic advances. 
Here are two of the many strategies he uses to keep us from the Master. Number one, he convinces us that we are unworthy to enter the presence of the Master, even through prayer, by using the tactics of guilt, shame, or embarrassment, knowing that we have, quote, all sinned and come short of the glory of God. He reminds us that the Master is perfect and we are not, pushing further the distance between us. Number two, he makes us believe that we can do all things on our own and have no need for the Savior's help, just as a small child responds to a parental guidance by saying, I can do it myself. This is commonly known in LDS parlance as the pride cycle. Not a good place for us to find ourselves as adults. Some years ago, while serving with the missionaries in the Arizona-Tucson mission, I created a series of what my bride, Betty Jo, likes to call doctrinal diagrams. This one deals with what I have termed the drift phenomenon. It works like this. Say you receive a new calling in the church and you are totally overwhelmed. You need the influence of the Master in order to execute your calling. He, of course, responds with the appropriate inspiration, but as time goes along, you get more comfortable with the calling and your ability to perform it. What may inadvertently happen is that you begin to drift away from the need for constant inspiration and toward a reliance on your own abilities. Not that you would ever plan on or even notice this happening. It just seems to be a part of what King Benjamin might have called the natural man syndrome, that tendency to drift away from the master and his influence when we are not in personal crisis mode. Once again, we become that proverbial three-year-old saying, or perhaps shouting indignantly, I can't do it myself. We are exactly where the adversary would like us to be, out there and on our own. On the other hand, if we lean not to our own understanding, run the arm of flesh, and as we stay close to the Master's influence, it is easy to see a dramatic difference. We might call this slide the non-drift phenomenon or a magnifying your calling phenomenon. Imagine the power as you become increasingly proficient in your calling while enjoying an ever-increasing degree of spiritual influence from the Master. To borrow a word from a famous MasterCard advertising campaign, priceless, suggesting a value difference between things we can buy, the temporal, and things we cannot buy, or the spiritual. And speaking of things temporal, consider the time and energy we spend at this and perhaps other institutions preparing for and advancing our careers. And let us remember that, <clears throat> unless I miss my guess, our careers will not rise with us in the resurrection. Certainly I will be unemployed, since I doubt the existence of or need for TV sets, billboards, YouTube, the Internet, or I-anything on the other side of the veil. I trust even our two surgeon sons may have to look elsewhere for employment. A very long time ago, as an undergraduate student at BYU, I memorized this quote from Harvard philosopher James Allen, in which he points out the danger of going it alone. 
Man is the causer, though nearly always unconsciously, of his own circumstances, and that while aiming at a good end, he is continually frustrating its accomplishment by encouraging thoughts and desires which cannot possibly harmonize with that end. Making critical life decisions without the aid of the Master's direct spiritual influence is like embarking on a long sea voyage in a craft without a rudder or a helm or perhaps even a mast. Continuing our list, here are three more strategies the adversary uses that may be keeping us from a broader, deeper, critical relationship with our Master. Number three, he creates doubt about our own self-worth and our own God-given abilities. Number four, he gives us a feeling of entitlement. Since, after all, we are children of God, we are all somehow amazingly due a divine inheritance. The entitled attitude says, it's never my fault. Surely the blame for my inability to perform up to expectations must lie with another. And besides, isn't the Savior supposed to be my all-time safety net? Number five, he helps us, not that we need help here, but he helps us develop our powers of procrastination. After all, there is always and forever tomorrow, right? What could possibly be the rush? My guess is that at one time or another we have all felt these negative tuggings or feelings in our lives and have to some extent at least bought in to some of our mortal foibles and frailties with which the adversary is so awfully familiar. May I now share a very personal experience from years ago that may serve to illustrate this point. I had been set apart by two general authorities as stake president during the blessing, certain, as I viewed them, promises had been mentioned, one of which related to the success of the new business venture I had just undertaken. But things did not go well business-wise. Unbeknown to me, I had started an advertising agency on the cusp of a serious recession. After weeks of unease, early one morning, with many unanswered questions in my heart, a terribly alone and uncertain feeling washed over me like a waterfall of doubt. Although going into business for myself seemed like an inspired decision at the time, I began to second-guess the rightness of my choice and even wondered about the inspired words that had been uttered just a few months before. Fortunately, I followed a common pattern and went to the scriptures and to the Lord, anxiously looking for answers, any answer that might mitigate my vexed state of mind. I was pondering the words in Matthew chapter 28 about the risen Lord, specifically verse 6, in which the angel says to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who were in search of the Master, just as I was on that morning, and perhaps you may be today, Quote, he is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Close quote. The details of what followed are not important here, except to say that in my scriptures, there is written in the margin a little note that simply says, special experience. The Lord blessed me that day with a powerful witness of the reality of the Savior 
As my personal advocate with the Father, the Creator of heaven and earth, and the would-be friend of all mankind, today I testify that He lives and that He wants nothing more than to help us perform well on this playing field of life. Yes, the business survived the recession, and happily all the words spoken in my blessing were fulfilled. More importantly, I learned something about the definition of the phrase, in the Lord's own way. Now let's look a bit more closely into the self-doubt scenario we sometimes find ourselves in. That space between our gospel goals and our actual behavior against those goals. Here we see that interesting space between where we may be performing now and where we'd like to be. Let's just call it the mortal shortfall gap. This is where many of us get into trouble, allowing self-doubt to creep in and create a series of performance stress risers and debilitative, non-productive thinking. If we are not careful, we succumb to another of those flaxen cords and start to envision the gap widening to the point that we begin to lose faith. Once again, exactly where the adversary wants us, solitary and doubtful of our own abilities. But lest we find this graph troubling, good news. The Master also knows full well the challenges of mortality. And fortunately, he has both the ability and the predisposition to fill that mortal shortfall gap. Look what happens when we fully accept Christ as our personal Savior, Advocate, Redeemer, filling that gap so completely with hope and understanding and promise that the shortfall becomes narrower and narrower until that eventual perfect day. Actually, the diminishing effect of our shortfall is the emancipating and empowering effect of the Savior's atonement. For our part, a change in attitude or mighty change of heart toward that gap helps our performance considerably. Listen to what the ancient and articulate prophet Alma has to say concerning the atonement. And he will take upon him there, or we could insert here, our infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. And in our day, the Savior has spoken to us in the Doctrine and Covenants with these reassuring words, For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. For a moment now, let's revisit that potentially devastating alone feeling, a feeling I suppose has come over all of us at one time or another, whether we were physically isolated or perhaps within a supportive group, but still very much alone in our thoughts. This feeling of abject loneliness is another key tactic used by the adversary to create distance between us and our Savior. The subtlety here is that Satan would have us believe that no one, not even the Master, can, quote, reach me and relate to me on a personal level and feel exactly uh, how I feel in my terribly unique circumstance. But the Master knows and feels your precise pain and anguish, regardless of its source and intensity. The Savior has vicariously suffered your exact same suffering. Paul's marvelous discourse on this subject in Hebrews 
offers grace to help in our time of need. May I quote the last few verses from Hebrews chapters 2 and 4, which have brought peace and solace to my soul over the years when I have felt particularly alone in this world, though surrounded by friends. Hebrews chapter 2, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. And the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 4, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that invitation. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. And speaking of grace, I for one believe that when it comes to our own individual progress toward our goals, vector almost certainly trumps velocity. However long it takes, let us not lose our sense of direction. Here is one way to look at the Master's limitless ability to connect with us across the entire spectrum of human emotion. As mortals, we go through life and can experience some pretty low lows and also some pretty high highs. But as we see here, even though the Savior's earthly experience was every bit as real and visceral as our own, the Savior is on a scale that supersedes anything the rest of us can possibly encounter. We simply cannot get outside His ability to relate to us personally and individually. While meaning friends may offer their best approximate sympathy, only the Master offers ultimate and absolute empathy. Though I am a teaching professor and not a scientist per se, I love the way the Lord invites the scientific process. As described by Alma, who just might have been something of a scientist himself, he suggests that we experiment on the word in the crucible of the real world. Alma 32.27 says, But behold, if you will awake and arouse your faculties even to an experiment on my words and execute a particle of faith, yea, even if you can no more than desire to believe, let that desire work in you. Isn't that the way of the scientist and the researcher? Gather all the empirical evidence, all the data we can, and apply it to a theory or hypothesis? Then create a repeatable, predictable experiment that proves or disproves the theory. The Savior, both in His own recorded words and through the words of all His holy prophets, has invited us to come unto Him to experiment for ourselves the truthfulness of His gospel and claim the attendant blessings. I appreciate so much the Savior's intercessory prayer in which He gives us all a glimpse of the possible glory inherent in a relationship with Him, which is a type of the oneness relationship He has with the Father. May I share a few verses from the 17th chapter of John? First, the Savior to His apostles in verse 11. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come unto thee, Holy Father. 
Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. And then to the rest of us, in verses 20 and 21, he says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. We began this morning with the analogy of leaving it all on the field. How is it possible for us to not only take this earthly field, but come away victorious? May I suggest by eschewing the strategic advances of the adversary, by developing that critical personal and interactive relationship with the Master. May we not be found undervaluing the role of the Master whose arms are outstretched still. We have the opportunity here and now to make him not just a Facebook friend, but a most personal, powerful, and influential advocate. Let us not buy into the adversary's attempts at keeping us away from the everlasting peace and safety and eventual exaltation available if we but commend our own personal will into his all-powerful hands. I testify of the reality of the living Christ, just as the First Presidency and Twelve Apostles have declared in a modern-day proclamation, and that as we boldly approach Him, our own personal performance becomes our own personal legacy. As we engage with the Master, may we leave it all on the playing field of this life, which is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Avoiding the Advances of the Adversary, with thoughts from Boyd K. Packer and Douglas R. McKinley. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.